Uh, so as we draw to a close, actually, in the Gospel of Mark, we want to make sure you are there with us. So if you need a Bible, uh, lift your hand up, and uh, David will bring you one. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, please let us know. Uh, we'll give you one to take home. In the Gospel of Mark, uh, <laughs> as we've gone through through the whole gospel, passage by passage, I don't know about you, but I think it, there, it's been a little bit of a tough road, because he paints a picture of discipleship uh, that uh, is not so much of, uh, here's what a great disciple looks like, but, but it's more of, here's what disciples don't look like. We see the disciples fumbling about, don't we? They, they don't know how to understand his Jesus' miracles. They, they are following him. They're not exactly sure what it fully means to follow him. They're not entirely sure who he is. And so there's confusion about who Jesus really is. And because there's confusion about that, they're afraid. They're a fearful bunch. And so they're, they're um, by the time Jesus, they, they scatter uh, in, in fear. And so the defining trait of the disciples is confusion that leads to fear. And that might be a defining trait of your discipleship. I mean, if you think about it, some some people, their uh, their life can be defined by uh, running in the opposite direction of Jesus. They they don't want to follow Jesus, and maybe some people say they 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 say they want to follow Jesus, but there are just things in their lives that they don't want to let go of, and they're the things that they shouldn't be doing that they just keep doing. And uh, when they're confronted with it, they don't care. And they're kind of stuck loving sin. But then there's a group of people that follow Jesus and they're, they, they're putting sin to death and they're growing in their sanctification, their holiness. They're, they're, they're growing in their maturity, but they're still fearful. And it seems to me like that's what Mark is really getting after is the fearful Christian. The Christian that's afraid to really be Christian. Um, we're not afraid to stop doing bad habits, to quit cussing and to quit drinking and maybe quit hanging out with certain people that are just kind of dragging us down. And so we kind of change our friendships and we change the rhythm of our lives to be more centered on uh, our Christian friendships and things like that. But you can still kind of be a hidden Christian. That's not really that scary. You can slip into your workplace and slip out, and they don't really even know you're a Christian. And so what Mark is trying to do in his gospel is find you there, show you like, yeah, these guys were like that too, but he doesn't want to leave you there. He wants to draw you out of that. I think a, a pertinent example would be evangelism. About how often do we talk about evangelism and reaching out to neighbors, and we've preached on it, taught classes on it, we've given you books about it. We talk about it in our small groups, and do we really do it? I think we're confused about our roles as disciples, and I think we're scared about what it really means if I took discipleship totally seriously. If I stopped playing around and took it seriously to its logical end, we're scared of that. And Mark wants to meet you there and go, hey, I know. The original apostles that you read about, those courageous guys in the Gospel of Acts, look at how they started out. A bunch of scaredy cats. 
And he wants to take you where you are, meet you where you are, and say, I, I know it's a fearful thing to be a disciple, but he doesn't want to leave you there. And this is how the gospel wraps up. So let's go to Mark chapter 15, verse 40. Mark chapter 15, verse 40. We're going to go through 16, 8. And as I mentioned, I believe it was last week, we're going to call 16, 8 the end. Now, some, most of you probably have a lot more than past, you know, 16, 9 and following. We'll talk about that in a minute. But we're going to go 1540 to 168, and it's Mark's last sandwich. Okay, now those of you who've been here for a while from the beginning of going through the Gospel of Mark, I've talked a lot about sandwiches, and it's not just because I'm hungry, which I always am, but it's because Mark likes to use a literary device. It's a way of communicating. It's subtle, but when you see it, it's very satisfying and it communicates. A sandwich is when he mentions something, then introduces something different, and mentions the original thing again. So you have two components, you can call them A1 and A2, and then he puts B in the middle, something else in the middle that's in the middle of the sandwich. Two pieces of bread, and then there's meat in the middle. Why does he do that? He does that because he wants to bracket something that he wants to bring your attention to. So you have these two things here and something in the middle that's different, that's a contrast, that's surprising, and he wants that to be the thing that hits you between the eyes. And he ends his gospel with that. Uh, you have the women that gather at the, uh, uh, around, kind of watching Jesus from a distance, uh, the whole crucifixion scene. Then he moves to Joseph of Arimathea and what he does with Jesus' body, and then he goes back to the same women again. Okay, so that's the structure. We're going to read it straight through, then I'll back up and then explain what, what is Mark getting at with this sandwich at the end of his gospel. And I think it has everything to do with finding you where you are, most likely a fearful disciple. You're a believer, you believe in Christ, but you're fearful. Take it all the way. Let's let him find us there, starting in 1540. Here's the first piece of bread, 40 to 41. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Okay? Didn't really move us along very much, right? You're getting down to the end of the gospel. There's not a whole lot of ink left. And it's like, yeah, these women, so-and-so and so-and-so, they used to follow him. But mentioning Galilee is key. You remember Galilee is the place where Jesus originally called his disciple. Galilee was like his disciple-making hub. It was the center. It's where everything started. And, and, and he's saying, these are disciples, and they were there. Verse 42, he introduces someone else. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. 
Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, remember the centurion from last week that proclaimed that this is truly the Son of God, he asked him whether he was already dead, verse 45. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Then he goes back to the women. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were very or for they were afraid. So you have a group of women enters, entering the scene. You have Joseph of Arimathea, and then Mark goes back to the same group of women. So there's the structure. What's going on? Well, it's nice to have details about um, the burial and that it was a tomb and that it was a very heavy stone. Those are nice details, but that's not the primary burden of Mark's communication here, what he's trying to get across. When he first brings our attention to the women, he notes in verse 40 that they're looking from a distance. The centurion is right there. The women, they're far away. They're looking but they're at a distance, and that's his first clue that they're, they're not a courageous bunch. You know, they recognize this is dangerous, but they're also very curious. They want to see him, but, but they, don't, they don't want to be close. And we might feel like maybe we're reading into that a little bit too much until you get to the second piece of bread, and he makes it very clear they're a fearful bunch. So verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jesus, together with... Uh, Salome in 16.1. He watched from a distance. They're a little bit worried about who's going to roll the stone away in verse 3. Um, they're not sure. So it's this, again, they're just, they have questions. They don't have answers. Then in 16.5, they're alarmed. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting there. There's, a, there's a, an angel there, and they're alarmed. And the word alarmed there is not like... Um, Oh, they took notice. It's, it's the same word used of Jesus' distress in Gethsemane. So it's a distressing fear that they're alarmed. And then, of course, 16.8 makes it very clear. They went out. The angel gave them a message. But what did they do? They fled from the tomb, not because they were so eager and so excited about the message, but because trembling and astonishment had taken them over. They're, they're full of fear at this point. And did they deliver the message? 
Not at first, at least. They didn't say anything to anyone. Why? Because they were afraid. That's why. The women were afraid. Then you have Joseph. And we don't know the whole story of Joseph. It does tell us that Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin, the very people that were in charge of getting Jesus to the point of getting crucified. These were the Jewish leaders, and he's one of them. And he's not just kind of in the back like a rookie guy that barely got in. He's a respected member of the council. He's one of the top guys in the Sanhedrin. And we don't know if he tried to stop the crucifixion. Maybe he was quiet before. Maybe he used to be afraid. But now he's moving forward. Why? Because of verse 43. He's looking for the kingdom of God. And because he's looking for the kingdom of God, he set his sight on the kingdom of God. Nothing else matters. And what does he do to approach Pilate? He takes courage to approach Pilate. Now you have Rome who crucified a rival king. That's why they put it at the top. And you remember Pilate kept saying that. Oh, you want your king? How about I release your king to you? He keeps referring to him as that. Because if they want Rome to crucify Jesus, they have to set him up as a man who's trying to take over. He wants to tear this temple down. He wants to be a big shot. He doesn't care about Caesar. He doesn't even want us to pay taxes to him. He's a rival king. You guys should put him down. Okay, so they put him down. Imagine going to that same government and saying, can I have his body? Why? Are you part of the rebel? Rebellion? Are you also a rival? So it took courage to go and ask Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. You know, Romans liked to let the bodies hang there as a spectacle for everyone to get discouraged about being rebels. But he takes courage and he goes to Pilate and he asks for the body. And he prepares Jesus' body for burial. And your mind might hearken back to the woman who came in and anointed Jesus' body. Jesus said what she's doing is a good thing because she's preparing me for burial. And he comes and he literally prepares his body for burial. So he brings the linen shroud. He takes him, he does the dirty job, right, of taking this corpse off of the cross. And he wraps him and he lays him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. It would be like a six by nine tomb where you can kind of walk in hunched over, and then on the side of the wall, just ledges cut where they would put the corpse, um, and then they roll a huge stone in front of it. So he takes courage to do this, to do this work. And the ladies also want to provide spices and perfume the body, but they're afraid. So you have this fearful bunch, and then one who's courageous in the middle. That's the sandwich. The bread is fearful discipleship, just like most of the Gospel of Mark. And then the meat in the middle is somebody who's different, who takes courage. Maybe I'll get arrested, maybe I'll get in trouble, but I'm seeking the kingdom of God and nothing else matters. I'm going for it. That's his last sandwich. That's his last punch that he wants to deliver to his readers. You're going to be a fearful follower or a courageous follower? I I probably don't need to say this in this church, but just in case... Um, I do want to make it clear that this is not a sexist contrast. This is not about women are fearful and guys are, are fearless. Uh, you maybe would be tempted to think that if you just dropped into this passage, but if you've been following us in the book of Mark, you see that the villains in the book are males. And you see that the fearful people are males. And that throughout the gospel of Mark, the ones that are, have been typically the models of courageous faith are women, like the woman with the anointing oil that 
came and poured her perfume over Jesus. Women are also the first witnesses. Women are also entrusted with the angel's message. And so the contrast is not about gender. But Mark is just using the contrast to demonstrate that there is a fearfulness that overtakes everyone that would be a disciple, but there is a kind of courage that is true discipleship. And Joseph represents that. And I think a point that he's trying to bring home, one of the points that he's trying to bring home is that discipleship can come from anywhere. Anyone can be a disciple. Last week we saw the centurion, one of the executioners, proclaims that this is the Son of God. He, he, the light bulb comes on for him. There was no warm-up. He didn't hang out with Jesus while he was alive. Just looking at the crucifixion, the light bulb comes on for him. And then now you get from the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, someone who comes and is following the kingdom of God. So one of the leading executioners that represents the Gentiles, one of the leading executioners that represents the Jews, and they, they end on a note of faith, meaning background doesn't matter. You could have been most anti-Jesus, and he can snatch you up for him. Nothing here about going back and fixing your, uh, doing a, a penance or a number of sacrifices before you can come in, a bunch of hoops to jump through before you can proclaim faith in Christ. You can go from executioner to faith in Christ in a moment. So background doesn't matter. Literally, a disciple can come from anywhere. Anyone can be a disciple. Anyone can be a disciple. The disciples often come from the unlikeliest places. Even when he initially chose his disciples, he didn't choose uh, PhDs, he didn't choose professors, he didn't choose people that were already engaged in ministry. He chose ordinary, average people. And they became the world shakers in the book of Acts. They went from fearful to courageous. How did that happen? How did that happen? We'll look at that in a moment. But first I want to take what's going to seem like a time out, but it's pertinent, I think. And I want to address the end of the Gospel of Mark. Why, is, why am I not counting Mark 9 through the through the rest. Mark 16, 9 through the rest. Why am I stopping at 16, 8? You might have a note there that says some of the earliest manuscripts don't include 16, 9 to the end, 16, 9 through 20. So I want to explain it. And then I'll tie it back into Mark's message. It's one of the reasons why this has been added, I think, is because people find Mark's ending at 16, verse 8 to be quite inadequate. That's a really bad ending. So, why do we have this extra ending? Okay. We don't have the original Gospel of Mark. We don't have the original any of the Bible books. Don't have the originals. How do we know what we have is what Mark wrote? Copies. Now you might think, well, copies can get messed up when you take a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy 
It feels like the telephone game where some kid on one end whispers something into this first kid's ear, and by the time the whisper gets to the end, it's a completely different message, right? But that's not how it worked. We didn't have a copy that copied a copy that copied a copy, but there were originals that were copied in mass. So I have tons of copies that had access to the original. So we've got over, over 5,000 manuscripts or pieces of manuscripts uh, ranging from A.D. 135 to A.D. 1200. And some manuscripts are as small as a postage stamp, and some manuscripts are manuscript copies of the entire Bible, and then everything in between. And they, they, it's astonishing the agreement that they have between each other. There's lots of agreement. Very little spaces where you go, well, there's some conflict here. We're not sure what the original was behind it. What's happening here is that most of our original and best manuscripts stop at 16.8. Some manuscripts have 16.9 through 20. Okay. A lot of those manuscripts that have 16.9 through 20 put a little note there to let you know, hey, this is an original. So even the copies that have the ending, the longer ending, some of them even put a little footnote just to let you know, hey, this wasn't original, but we just think it's better with this longer ending. <laughs> that stinks to just end, and they were afraid. The end? That's not very encouraging. Matthew ends with the call, like, go and preach the gospel, right? And Mark ends with, and they didn't deliver the message because they were scaredy cats. Like, the end. And if you've ever gone to a movie and you thought it was going swimmingly and it was a great plot and it's awesome and then the screen goes black, you're like, wait a second, and then the credits roll and you're really ticked off, you want your money back just because the ending was so abrupt. That's how readers of this gospel felt. And so the ending was cobbled together from the other gospels. There's nothing heretical in it. There's nothing wrong in it or contradictory in it. Uh, but probably not original. Now some people think, well, maybe Mark had an original ending that was lost, and he didn't end it at 16.8. Well, that's possible. Um, that's not impossible, but kind of doesn't matter. We don't have it. But I'm of the opinion that 16.8 is a good ending. I think it's a good ending. First of all, because it's his last sandwich. If the, if the bread pieces represent fear, of course he has to end it. Otherwise, it'd be, it'd be like a half sandwich, right? He starts with fear, he ends with Joseph, but he's completing it because that's one of, the, that's one of his MOs. That's how Mark writes. He, mark, he writes in sandwiches. And so he ends with one more sandwich. And what does the sandwich communicate? Are you going to be a fearful disciple or a courageous disciple? Which one is it? And so I think that last verse... They were supposed to deliver a message, and they didn't deliver a message because they were afraid. I think the implied question is, is that going to be you? Are you going to be a disciple who's been entrusted with a message and doesn't deliver it because you're scared? Are you going to be Mary, or are you going to be Joseph? Which one is it? I think that's the point of the whole book. I think it matches the entire rest of the book. And I think it's a very poignant way to end. And some people may think, well, our writers didn't really write that way back then. Jesus taught that way. You remember the story of the, the parable of the prodigal son? And he tells the story of the younger son. 
And the younger son takes all the dad's money that, that is, in, is his inheritance and he runs away from home and he spends it all and then he realizes this is terrible. I made a terrible mistake. I need to go home and repent. I'll offer dad to, to be a worker instead of a son. And so he comes home, starts the speech. The dad interrupts the speech and says, you're not going to be a worker. You're going to be a son because sonship has nothing to do with working. Sonship has to do with me calling you a son. So he puts a robe on him, puts a ring on his finger, puts the sandals on his feet, has the servants give him a bath, tidy him up. And then they have this big celebration. That's part one. Part two is the older son. The story starts with the father who had two sons. But the the story with the elder son is incomplete. The elder son, he comes in from the field, sees that they're having a big party. He's upset. He doesn't want to go in. He's pouting. The father comes out. What are you doing out here? Shouldn't you be in celebrating? Well, I can't believe you're celebrating that punk. He took all this stuff. He left me with all the work, and I've been here working, and I've never had a celebration. He comes in out of nowhere dirty, still smelling of all the stuff that he did out there, and you're throwing a party for him. And the father says, but everything I have is already yours. And then it ends. Don't you want to know what the elder son said? How the elder son responds? Why does it end abruptly? Here's why it ends abruptly. Jesus is telling the parable in response to Pharisees who are mad at Jesus for talking and hanging out with sinners. So what Jesus is doing is, let me tell you a story. And when he gets to just about the end, he stops it. And it's like he's saying, Pharisee, you're the elder son. You're the one that refuses to celebrate with my reconciliation with sinners because you think you're not a sinner. You think you've been working for your righteousness and this person hasn't earned righteousness, but they get the party and you don't. You don't get the party until you realize you can't earn it. So how do you respond? If their question is, how does the elder finish the story? He's saying, no, you finish the story. You're the elder son. You finish it. One of, the, one of my favorite movies when I was a kid, it's so cheesy now, but The NeverEnding Story. You may have seen it. And this kid grabs a book. He actually steals it from a bookstore and he runs into to the attic of his school and he starts reading this book and it's getting intense and he starts getting hints that he's involved in the story and he's like hey, talk, talking about me and then the last pages are blank and he has to finish the story he has to shout out the princess's name from the window or something like that to finish the story that's a literary device that jesus used in the parable and i think that's at least the function of what's happening in matthew in mark 16 8 which disciple are you going to be you finish the story Now you might say, wait, there's supposed to be a great commission where Jesus tells the disciples what their job is, what that message is that they're supposed to go deliver. Mark gave that already. And he didn't just sneak it in the back somewhere in the beginning of the story. He's reminding you of it twice. First, he reminds you about Galilee in verse 41. That the girls, these disciples, they were disciples because they were in Galilee too when Jesus called disciples to himself. Then we get the reminder again in verse 7 of chapter 16. The the angel tells the ladies to go, here's the message, go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. Why is that important? I want you to turn with me to chapter 14, just a couple pages back. Chapter 14, verse 27. Jesus told the disciples that they're scaredy cats. He told them that they're fearful. He told them that they lack courage and that that was going to result in them running away. But then he gave them a promise. 
He says in verse 27, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You guys are going to fulfill scripture, not in a good way. (laughs) But verse 28, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So there's his reminder. We're going to meet in Galilee. That's the meeting point. After I die and after I'm raised and after you all run away, a bunch of fearful people, I'm going to meet you in Galilee and reconstitute you. Because you scattered, the game is not over. After scattering, you will be reconstituted. You will be brought back on mission. When I die, that's not the end of the story. Just like you scattering is not the end of the story. After you scatter, when I die, I will be raised up and then I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to bring you back to Galilee and get you back on mission with the original call, which was what? Chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Jesus comes on the scene. He fulfills what Israel could never fulfill. You can go back to those early sermons to hear more on that. Then he calls his first disciples in verse 16, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. There's the headquarters. There's where it starts. There's where discipleship begins. He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him, and there began the journey. There's the journey. The journey is to be trained up and taught so that they can fulfill what Jesus has called them to do. They don't do it well. They, they shoo away people that, aren't, that are supposed to come to Jesus. They have arguments about who's the most important. And Jesus is like, it's, not about, it's last being least. It, it's, it's, the last will be first. And so they, they have confusion along the way. It ends in their scattering. It ends in their fearfulness. And it ends with Jesus reminding them, hey, After I die, I'm going to be raised. I'm going to meet you back in Galilee. They don't remember any of that. The fact that he said he was going to be raised. So he died. They're not waiting for a resurrection. They just think he's dead. They're confused again and fearful again. The women were watching at a distance, but the the disciples aren't even watching at a distance. We don't even know where they are. They're literally scattered. And then finally, the angel gives the message to the women. Go tell the disciples that Jesus is waiting for them in Galilee. And he's going to remind them of chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. And he's going to remind them of their mission. And the fact that they were fearful, the fact that they were a scattering type of group, doesn't matter. Because he's going to change them and make them into the fishers of men that he's calling them to be. So does Mark give us the mission? Yes. And Mark is a very intelligent writer and it it might be that he doesn't feel like you need that last chunk of, now Jesus reminded them, go into all the world, I want you to fish for people. He gave that to you already. So Mark's concern is to end on a note, I think, of asking you, using that last sandwich, which one you're going to be. You're going to be afraid, or are you going to get out there? Now, Mark is not going to let you get off the hook by going, I'm not going to be afraid. I'm a courageous Christian. I'm going to follow through. I'm going to go home and I'm going to start my private devotional life. I'm not going to be afraid. This year, I'm going to read through the entire Bible. 
I've given up 15 times before, but this time I'm going to make it all the way through next December. I'm going to finish reading the whole Bible. I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to finally, I'm going to finally, um, you know, start tucking my kids in at night with some kind of scripture. You can still be a really scared Christian and do private stuff. What is Mark's model of a disciple? When Jesus calls the disciples, how does Jesus himself define discipleship? This is is something I, I wrestle with. I feel like every year I wrestle with this again, and I find myself tempted to reinterpret it. But when you just look at Scripture, objectively speaking, he calls the disciples, and when he calls them to follow him, following him means doing what? Getting other people to follow Disciples are disciple makers. Now, we may not say this, but here's what we believe. Disciples are learners, and some disciples are teachers. Most disciples come, and you learn, and you do your quiet time, and you get your study Bible, and you take your notes, and you listen to the sermons, and you you learn, 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 learn. And then some disciples, they're so good at it. They're so nerdy, right? They're just so uh, teachy that... They're the ones that become the disciplers and the mentors and the elders even in the church. I can't find a verse for that. I can find verses that say some are preachers and some are ones that rule over congregations, overseers, elders. Not everyone's an elder, that's true. And you can find a verse that says an elder has to be able to teach, but you can't find a verse that only the elder teaches. There's definitely no verse that says that. In fact, Ephesians 4 makes it very clear that the role of the leaders in the church is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Especially in America, I think we have a very backwards model where people come, they put money in the plate, and they expect the pastors to do the work of the ministry. But that's the reverse of what Scripture makes very plain. The role of the elders is to equip the saints to do the ministry that they're supposed to be doing. And I don't want to denigrate the ministries that we do in here, but he's not talking about folding bulletins. Jesus doesn't say, follow me, and I'll help you take care of little kids in the nursery. Now, those are important things. But that's not discipleship. We don't get to fill out the card and say, yes, I'm a fully devoted disciple because I participate in the church. I help set up tables. I help run the potlucks. I can't even do that by saying I preach sermons. Sermons are easy. I can prepare sermons and talk to people who just smile, give me thumbs up, afterwards say, oh, look, uh, I learned this today. (laughs) That's great. I love that. And then everywhere else I go, just, I need to be a disciple maker. Now I'll make this clear. Our role is not to win people to Christ because only God can do that. You can't make the light bulb come on for anybody. Our role is a role of messenger. We fish for men. God is the one that's in charge of how many end up in the net. But we have to do the fishing. And I don't think there's one person in here who's, who's, for whom that does not apply. Long before we had terms like introverted and extroverted, 
long before we had complicated charts to find out if you're an IJSF or whatever the... Aside from personality, aside from background, aside from temperament, aside from how long you've been a Christian, if you are a Christian, you're a disciple. And if you're a disciple, according to what a disciple is in Scripture, you are also a disciple-getter, a disciple-maker. And my hope is that as we enter this new year as a church, that we stop praying things like God send people. Can we stop praying that? God goes and gets people through his people. I don't want to pray any longer, God fill our seats. I want us to go get. Because the posture is one of sitting back and having a building and waiting for God to do what he's explicitly commanded us to do. Now you might fumble through it. You might not know what to say. You might feel like it's the, when you first try to approach your spouse and your wife and ask her on that first date and it was awkward, but you did it. You did it because you had to do it. Otherwise you'd be single the rest of your life. And you don't want that. And so you do it. You didn't want to ask for that job. You didn't want to apply. You were nervous. Going in for that first interview, you were beside yourself nervous, but you did it anyway because you don't want to be a bum living in your pal's basement from college for the rest of your life. You need a job. And so you got over it and you did it. What are we afraid of? He gives us a promise. I'll go before you. I will lead you in it. He doesn't want you to just go perform while he sits back and (laughs) let's see if he gets it. Let's see if she can do it. But that he will go with you. So I want us to develop a culture where we get together and we go, hey, I talked to this guy at work this week. What do you say? Oh man, he totally hates my guts now. But I talked to him about the gospel. And we celebrate that. We don't only celebrate the baptisms, but celebrate the conversations that don't work because that was you doing your job. And we should celebrate that together. The door was totally slammed in my face. Oh, it was a really awkward conversation. Defriended me on Facebook. I didn't even realize until a couple weeks later. Wasn't seeing posts. And not to celebrate the the awkwardness of it, but to celebrate, hey, we're doing it, even when it's weird, even when it might compromise a friendship or change the dynamics of a friendship. We're communicating to them, I'm not okay being your friend and never talking about your eternity. Want to still be friends? I'm not going to be obnoxious about it, but I'm, I'm not going to leave it alone either. We're going to, once in a while, I'm going to bring it up. I'm going to invite you to church. I'm going to invite you to read the Bible with me. And they can drop the friendship. But we're not putting friendships before followership. Which one are we going to be? I'm preaching to myself. Which one am I going to be? Scaredy cat Lucas? Or one that's allowing God to do something else, something that I don't think is normal, something that I wouldn't do were it not for a gospel call in my life, to reach out to people and say, hey, I want to talk to you about something that's really important to me. I want to share my story with you. Can we do that over coffee? You have a couple of minutes. And then we start fulfilling not just the prayer banner or the fellowship the worship, but this is the outreach. We're not going to develop some program that does it for us. You're the program. Our people are it. And we need to cling to Jesus' promise that he'll lead us in it. He'll do us. He'll do it. He'll he'll be the, the empowerment behind it. But we need to do it. We need to engage in it. Let's pray.